Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Brothers and sisters, as we continue in our Colossians series this evening, Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians 1, and we'll be reading verses 24 through 29. Let's hear God's powerful, inerrant Word. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray together. O gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit who has enlivened our hearts so that we can hear your word and know it and understand it and apply it. So, Lord, as we look to your word, we pray, Father, that you would bless us with a filling of your spirit, that we would see the glories of Christ and what he has done for us through his death and through his life and reign and and how we have been blessed through him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, tonight we finish chapter 1 in Colossians. And as we have traveled through chapter 1, we can see how Paul's vision shifts throughout the chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul's focus is on the Colossians. And in verses 3 through 14, he gives praise to the Lord for their steadfast faith in Christ. And Paul then lets them know how he and Timothy ardently pray for them, how they continually ask the Lord to strengthen them in their faith, that they would grow in wisdom in how to live for Christ. And in living for Christ, they pray that the Colossians would bear much fruit, that the reality of their inner faith would be evident by their outward actions. And having focused horizontally on the Colossians, Paul's focus shifts in verses 15 through 23.
Paul looks upward. He looks upward to Christ. And he gives a stirring vision of Christ's supremacy as our eternal creator and redeemer who has fashioned the world and then entered it as the Son of Man to save his people, reconciling them to himself through his death on the cross, making, taking upon himself the just judgment that we deserve for our sin, which has separated us from a holy God. And the Lord, having paid that penalty, he gives us an eternal, life-giving, life-changing relationship with him. And then Paul says, this is the glorious gospel which is spreading throughout the world that I have the privilege to proclaim. And so in the remaining verses, Paul's focus then shifts inward, highlighting for the Colossians what it is like to be a minister of the gospel. This astounding privilege that he has been given to be a preacher of the gospel. And in doing so, he illuminates three things. His motivation, his mission, and his might. And Paul packs a lot in these remaining verses. There's a lot to unpack here, and we could spend our whole time at just one of, th of these three aspects of his ministry individually. But let's cover all three tonight to kind of wet, our, wet your whistle for your own further study and understanding and application. So first, we will look at Paul's motivation, which we see in verse 24. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my suffering. What? What? Let's just stop there. That, what, what an astounding, perplexing statement. Rejoice in my suffering? I don't know about you, but I don't normally put those two things together. Rejoicing and personal suffering do not normally go hand in hand. It's beyond what we would expect. It's so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. Who rejoices in suffering? Now, a masochist might take pleasure in pain. But generally speaking, we want to avoid suffering at all costs. And yet Paul says here that he rejoices in suffering. What does he mean? Well, the next phrase is instructive. Paul says in verse 24, I rejoice in my suffering. Why? I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. He could rejoice in his suffering because the toil, the pain, was worth it as it was the expected byproduct of growing the church. These Colossians were growing in the gospel, and their growth in the gospel was an offshoot of Paul's ministry. 
So Paul could rejoice because his ministry was bearing fruit and his suffering was the natural outcome of an effective, fruitful ministry. Now, why was that so? Paul knew that in proclaiming the gospel that there would be persecution. He knew that his message would not be welcomed with open arms by his fellow Jews or Gentiles. He would suffer in proclaiming it. The fact that he found joy in suffering doesn't mean that he enjoyed the suffering, but he found joy in suffering because his suffering meant that he was being effective. Paul was involved in a spiritual battle, and he had the war wounds to show for it. 2 Corinthians 11 gives us a litany of what he went through to serve as Christ's herald. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul had done a cost analysis And the costs were minimal in comparison to the immeasurable benefits of seeing believers grow in their faith. So he could rejoice in suffering. It was worth all the suffering just to be able to see how Christ had worked through him to advance his kingdom and cause these believers to grow. And one way they must have grown is through Paul's example of suffering for the sake of the gospel. For his example just demonstrated for them the reality of the risen Christ working in Paul, enabling him to endure hardships and trials as he faithfully and effectively ministered as Christ's ambassador. So they must have said to themselves, well, if Paul can endure persecution and trial and not back down, not shy away from persecution, then so can we. For we have the Lord with us as well to embolden and to strengthen us. And in other scriptures, we see how Paul could rejoice in suffering. Suffering was not only indicative of a fruitful ministry for Paul, but suffering also produces Christ-like character. For what does Paul say in Romans 5.3? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame 
Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And James echoes the very same thing in his epistle in the first chapter when he says at verse 2, Count it all what? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. And Scripture also illuminates another reason why we can rejoice when we face various trials for the sake of the gospel. Reward. Here is Paul saying that he rejoices in suffering. Paul, who suffered rejection, threats to his life, living on the edge. And what does he call all of these things in 2 Corinthians 4.17? He calls them light, momentary affliction. Light and momentary affliction that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul could bear his suffering as he rejoiced in what awaited him in glory. His final letter to Timothy confirms that. Knowing that death was near, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a far cry and contrast is Paul the preacher to the false preachers who say, you know... If you come to Jesus, you can have it all. Come to Christ and you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You just name it and claim it. Just name it and claim it. And life will be a bed of roses. No. Come to Christ and you might find yourself in a bed of thorns. And yet Paul says that we can find joy with even being stung by thorns in following Christ. And how can that be? How can that be? Well, not only could he rejoice in suffering because it helped the church to grow in maturity and his own expectation of a future reward, but we see something else in the next phrase in which also illuminates why Paul could be joyful in suffering. 
Paul goes on to say in verse 24, And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, what a curious statement is that. One which has been debated over the centuries. What does Paul mean that he is filling up in the flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? Well, one thing we know that he doesn't mean, he isn't saying that he is adding to Christ's atoning death on the cross. After all, Paul clearly taught that Christ's death on the cross was all-sufficient and final, which he clearly teaches in the next chapter in verses 13 and 14, where he emphatically states that Jesus forgave all our sins having counseled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross. It's done. It's finished. There's nothing more to add to Christ's saving work. So what does Paul mean that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, one way to describe it is identification. In suffering for Christ, we identify with him in suffering for his sake as he suffered for our sake. There is a kindred suffering, you might say. Christ suffered, and through his death and resurrection, he brought life to the church. He brought it to life. And we might suffer to further Christ's kingdom as Jesus suffered to establish it. There is sort of a a symbiotic relationship between Christ and his people. There is this abiding connection that we have with our Lord. After all, in describing our connection to the Lord, Paul says that the Lord is the head of the church and we are the body. We are intrinsically connected to him, united to him, just as a head is united to the body. And also consider what the Lord Jesus said to Paul when he appeared to Paul at the time of his conversion. What did Jesus say? Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? No. He said, why are you persecuting me? as if Christ is being persecuted when his people are being persecuted. So Paul could rejoice in his suffering because his sufferings gave testimony that he had this real life-giving connection with his Savior, which enabled him to say in 2 Corinthians 5.5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And so it is with us. 
in our union with Christ. We receive all the blessings that are found in Him. We receive His righteousness, His power to sustain us, His presence which abides within us. And those are a comfort to us, beloved. They are a comfort to us in any affliction to know that we are bound to Him with an unbreakable bond of love. But it's also sobering that in our union with Christ, we also receive the backlash from being in a world that is at war with Him, where there is no neutrality at all. As Jesus Himself said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, we're not to go looking for persecution, but in maintaining faithful integrity to Him, persecution may come. And should it come, will we rejoice in it? Because persecution only demonstrates for us that we are His by the hostile reaction our faith engenders in others who are not. And if our culture stays on its current trajectory in regards to sexuality and gender and other issues, where will we be in five years when the media, academia, and our legislative bodies actively promote and pressure people to conform to what is clearly opposed to Scripture and to what is rational and true. It seems as though tolerance is becoming a one-way street, and we, beloved, are going against traffic. So what might it cost us to follow Christ in the years ahead? Scholarships? Job opportunities? Family relationships and friendships? All oh, the winds of change are blowing, and it seems that they are blowing against us. And what will be our mindset should those winds try to knock us down? Would we be able to say with Paul, I rejoice in my suffering for my commitment to Christ? Well, 1 Peter 4 summarizes Christ, Paul's teaching on rejoicing and suffering so beautifully. How is it possible to rejoice? Paul, Peter reiterates what that suffering for Christ points us to our eternal reward and affirms for us our present reality of being united with Him. He writes in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as what? You share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Well, having unpacked Paul's motivation for ministry, the rejoicing he had in making Christ known even in the midst of suffering, now let's turn our attention to his mission and briefly unpack it. He writes in verses 25 through 27, I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and for generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now Paul speaks of a mystery that was kept hidden but has now been revealed. And it's no mystery to us what that mystery Paul is speaking about because he makes it very clear in verse 27 what that mystery is, where he plainly states that the Gentiles have now been brought into the fold. They are now the recipients of the Lord's grace, and it is his mission to proclaim that gospel truth to the Gentiles. This astounding development in God's plan of redemption of his grace extended to the Gentiles, Paul wrote about in greater detail in Ephesians 3, where he says in verse 12, you Gentiles, remember that at the time you, at at that time, you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this was not some new idea or sudden development in which the Lord suddenly decided to extend His grace to the Gentiles. No, it was part of the Lord's redemptive plan all along that the Gentiles would be added into God's kingdom. In the Old Testament, we see this scarlet thread of redemption that points to the coming of Christ and with his coming that all the nations would be blessed through him. And that thread was woven into the tapestry of time past. It was there all along, but hidden, obscure as to the time of the Messiah's coming and how the Gentiles would be grafted in to the Lord's saving purposes. But what had once been obscure had now been made plain. And we see a part of that thread all the way back in Genesis 12 with the calling of Abraham and the promise that the Lord had made to him that through one of his offspring, one of his descendants, all the families of the world would be blessed. And then again in Genesis 22:18 the Lord reiterated his promise to Abraham that through his offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the thread of redemption was made even more visible and vibrant by the prophets who spoke of the coming Messiah the son of David's royal line who would bless the nations and rule over all people. 
And one of the most specific prophecies is Psalm 72, where King David speaks of his future son, who will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to all the ends of the earth. And in his son's universal reign, David says, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. And this king will be worthy of all honor and praise because this king, this king will be a savior. As David says in verse 12, his son, the Messiah, will deliver the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. And then moving forward in Isaiah 60 also speaks of the coming Savior who will be a light to the world, to all nations, and all nations will come to his light and kings to the brightness of his rising. And what was foretold by the prophets had now become a reality. So much so that Paul could state emphatically in Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles, our fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, beloved, when we read those words of Paul, do we not see ourselves in those verses? We have been blessed beyond all measure by the grace of God, who did not limit his grace to only the physical descendants of Abraham, but that he extended his grace to all nations and all people groups who put their faith in Christ alone for their salvation, making us one in him. And if you are trusting in Christ, what you have experienced in knowing Christ is a fulfillment of the promises and prophecies made centuries past, which spoke of the Lord's grace being extended to you as you have bowed your heart to Christ the King, acknowledging Him as the promised Messiah and Savior. You have Christ in you the hope of glory. And it was all part of the Lord's plan of redemption through Christ that stretches back before there was even time. Now, brothers and sisters, how does that encourage you? How does that knowledge comfort you? And as we know, Paul's mission to bring the gospel to all nations well, it continues on today. And in verse 28, Paul states that he accomplished that mission, how? By the manner of his preaching. He says in verse 28, him we proclaim, how? By warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, there may be a little bit of a backstory to what Paul is saying here because Paul emphasizes that he teaches and warns everyone. 
so that everyone grows to maturity in Christ. He is emphatic about his teaching being given to everyone. So Paul may be addressing the false teaching that was swirling around the early church, that there were false teachers proclaiming a superior wisdom, a wisdom that only a few elite could possess. But Paul makes clear that the gospel is for all. There isn't a spiritual first-class section that only a few can board. And we are all able to come to full maturity, so he teaches and warns everyone. And notice that he warns and teaches. He doesn't just teach, but he admonishes in his ministry as well. Now, admonishing might not sit too well today with people where we don't want to offend anyone. But warning and admonishing require a loving heart on the part of the pastor. To warn someone is to say, I care enough about you to caution you when I see you headed down the wrong path. So Paul here gives us a glimpse into his pastoral heart. And both warning and teaching involve speaking and they involve engaged listening. So what is required of us as followers of Christ but an attentive ear and a humble heart to listen to the Lord's Word and to receive it? And as we feed on the meat of the Word, what should happen? Well, Paul tells us in verse 28, that we grow in full maturity in Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cutting, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, which Paul teaches in Ephesians 4. Beloved, do not these verses offer us an, an opportunity for some self-examination. How are you doing in growing in Christ? How are you maturing in Him through absorbing His Word? And finally, in the last verse, we see Paul's might. He writes... In verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In this verse, Paul shares his heart, and he lets his readers know the burden that he has for them. The Greek word for toil conveys the idea of work that is done to the point of exhaustion. And the Greek word for struggling conveys the sense of agony. Such was the physical and mental exertion that Paul expended to see the believers come to maturity in Christ. And Paul was not toiling in a works righteousness sort of sense. Paul wasn't toiling to get the Lord's favor 
or to get the Lord's approval. No, rather, he was diligently working out of a delight, a delight because he had already received the Lord's approval out of his grace alone. And with joy, Paul was toiling, doing what the Lord had called him to do with all the might that he possessed. And notice that as Paul put forth such tremendous effort, where did his strength come? How was it possible for him to do all that he did? Well, it didn't come from him. No, Paul makes it very clear that he was able to minister to the Gentiles through the power of Christ, who powerfully worked within him. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's all very well and good. Paul was a missionary. Paul was a pastor. Paul was an apostle. Of course he would need the power of Christ in him to do what he did. But I'm not called to any of that. But these words regarding Paul's might were not just for him, but they're for us as well. We need the Lord's power in our lives to do what he has called us to do whether it's as a parent or a grandparent or in discipling, uh, coming alongside a fellow believer in which the older believer mentors the younger or in using whatever spiritual gifts the Lord has given you. We all need the power of Christ in us to live out whatever he has called us to do. So it is both encouraging on the one hand and also humbling on the other. It's humbling because it is the power of Christ who does the work in us in which we do the works that he has prepared for us to do beforehand that we should walk in them, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. It's humbling because it's not done in our strength, and it's not about us at all. And the Lord, he gets all the glory. It's humbling, because, but it's also encouraging because it is Christ who does the work. Now, how amazing is that, that we have Christ in us, working through us. He does the work in us so that he can do the work, his work, through us. We act, and he supplies the strength. So it's no wonder that Paul could proclaim in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember when I was in seminary, I went to seminary at Westminster full-time during the day, and I worked full-time in the evening at my church on the maintenance crew. And this verse... Philippians 4.13 was a constant source of encouragement to me that I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he did. Now, being in such a place is difficult, but it's really beneficial because it causes us to depend on our Savior and on leaning on him we grow in our relationship with him. Well, this evening we have seen how the gospel had shaped Paul's life, giving him motivation to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, which was his mission. 
that he did in the might of Christ. And so it begs the question, how does the gospel shape your life and motivate you to do whatever the Lord has given you to do in his might? Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sins, but that you sent your beloved Son to die for us in our place, taking upon himself the judgment that we deserved. And having put our faith in Christ, we have this relationship with you. And so we praise you and thank you for the wonder it is that we are intrinsically connected to you as our God, as our Lord, as our King. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord, that you would be at work in our hearts, strengthen us in our faith, enable us by your power to do what you have called us to do. We praise you and thank you for your goodness, for your mercy and your kindness, and your steadfast love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.